Hello, welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you. My name is Mary Tarsha, and I'm here with Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Thank you so much, Dr. Narvaez, for being here today. And uh, today we are talking about wisdom, and specifically primal wisdom. So what is primal wisdom? Well, let's just say uh, first that wisdom has a real long tradition in the human uh, species in our societies. It's got um, the history in in the West, uh, what I, we talked about in another program, traditional wisdom, and that um, viewpoint is very much part of the Abrahamic tradition, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and how that's developed is very similar. Uh, and we'll bring back, we'll talk about that again in, in a little bit. But let's today we're going to focus on primal wisdom, which is what I call our ancestral wisdom. It's what you can note in small band hunter-gatherer communities, the kind of society in which we spent 99% of our history as human beings, as human genus. And in that society, wisdom is related to survival. So you have to be wise, practically wise, um, morally wise. You have to get along with others in ways um, that are wise for a good life uh, in, the, in the social group, but also wise on the earth. And so uh, we are then going to focus on some of those key uh, differences, really, from the traditional wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking that wisdom has a much longer lifespan, as you write, uh, than the Abrahamic traditions and really is a part of our human essence for a very long time. So let me just uh, talk a little bit first about how the primal wisdom or aboriginal wisdom or uh, ancestral wisdom is related to what we call traditional wisdom in the West. They both uh, understand wisdom to exist beyond intellect, beyond thinking. It's something broader and bigger than just thinking. And if you think too much, you can actually uh, move away <laughs> from wisdom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then wisdom accesses other realms other than what you see in front of you. So it's much broader, trans-rational way of being. They both agree on this. They also uh, agree that you have to practice surrendering yourself, your ego, surrendering your own personal interests, ego, kind of um, this what we call selfish or self-interest, and surrender your, your being to the energy realm where divine energies are. And so part of what you're doing throughout uh, wisdom development is to clarify your heart, which is the receptor for that energy. And wisdom is a state-dependent feature. You just don't uh, um, become wise and then you're wise. No, you have to be in the right mode or mindset to be wise. So it's not a trait. It's state-dependent, although you have all sorts of skills that you develop to get there. And then it's focused on love. Fear has to be overcome and you are immersed in love, in a state of love. So that is the state you want to get to. And they both understand humans to have special responsibilities on the earth. So these are the things that are the same across uh, traditional wisdom in the West uh, and what I call primal or aboriginal wisdom. Mm, okay. And so we see that there are these, these comparisons between both of them. But what are some of the hallmarks of primal wisdom? So what makes it different or distinct or maybe uh, illuminating some of those ways is that ways that they're not the same. Yeah, one of the things that's interestingly different 
is that the uh, self is broad. It's in the primal wisdom tradition, uh, you are part of a huge sense of self. There's no solitary self, but it's part of, you are part of a larger common self. And it's, so it's an expansive set, uh, self, uh, and it's multidimensional. And you really are um, shifting uh, into that self, hopefully in wisdom. And everything is kind of sh uh, uh, energetic and energy forms in and out of uh, your every moment. Uh, things are dynamic. And so you have to stay in tune with the energies of the natural world. And in this uh, viewpoint, the common self is eternal. And there's really no place to go. You die and you become another form of life and you stay in, in the common self. So there's nothing to escape. You're not going to heaven or hell or, you know, waiting for that life, this life and this misery to be over. No, it's a state now that you have a choice to be in this wise wisdom state and realize your, you know, connection to the whole. And uh, that's where you're going to be forever, essentially, whether you come back uh, as, a, you know, some other life form, as some uh, believe, or as part of the wind, whatever <laughs> it is, you are moving through consciousness, uh, types of consciousness as you uh, exist. So it's a really a very different understanding of time then, right? So there's not, um, time isn't measured as we do today. And so it really kind of expands their understanding of their surroundings, but also of the, their very self. That's right. And part of who that you're, you're connected to or that self, that common self, is this uh, wider inclusive community, uh, wider kinship, and that is with everything on the earth. So you are uh, connected to, related to the trees, the rivers, the air, the animals, uh, everything is part of your common self. And so you, as a wise person, do not violate what's part of yourself. Instead, you cultivate courtesy, generosity, and respect to all these entities that are part of our world. And I think it's so interesting, too, when, when you write on that, you often say that there's no general fear of animals or even of others. They're all kin and part of the common self. So but I think that's a very big difference, uh, yes. a really new way of thinking about things. Well, that's actually an old way <laughs> all over new the world. New for us, I should say, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. It's the old way. So it's all the over the world, way. indigenous First Nation uh, societies have this view mm -hmm. uh, that they are part of a community, a biological community uh, with everything else. And another feature is that uh, the sense that nature is running on a gift economy, which means that it's always about gift giving, receiving and giving, giving and receiving. And it's a cycle of uh, generosity. You give to others and you take what you need, but only enough for uh, what you need, not anymore. And uh, you ask permission to take a life of an animal or a plant and then you give something back. So you're always in a cycle of communal giving, and that's just uh, infuses your life uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And what about with hunters? So I know you talk about this too, I mean, because there is a taking of life and, and this kind of thing. And so I think often you say that even the animal is, is giving there. Yes, and the, the, all over the world, hunters um, who have this viewpoint uh, point out that the animal actually selects themselves to be the one who is given mm -hmm. 
giving their life to the human community. So the hunter has to be in the right mindset, in the right mode, and respectful in various ways. And there's uh, different communities have different traditions, specific ones. But uh, if the hunter is not in that respectful mindset, they will not be successful. Hmm. But the animal often sticks up their head and looks that hunter in the eye, perhaps across the plane or wherever it is. That's at least how uh, many hunters tell the story. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And there's also beauty, right? So beauty that is just part and integrated um, in their everyday life and this great reverence and respect for beauty all around them. That's right. So that's another feature that's really integral to living a wise life as part of your uh, way of being is to walk in beauty, to grow beauty, to honor beauty, to express in a beautiful way. And and so you do that with the words you use, uh, the um, songs you sing, the way you treat others. It's always a sense of beauty within that um, kind of a uh, composite set of virtues of truth, goodness, integrity, uh, all of this is woven together in a harmonious way when you live in the primal wisdom manner. Yeah, and, and that as you're talking about that respect and the reverence, I mean, what is that? It's I like how you say here, it's respect before mystery, right? So it's almost this um, disposition of being in awe of before something. That's right, and humility is part of that humility. also, so that you are uh, receptive to signaling to the agency or needs of the other or their perspectives. You're always taking multiple perspectives here and trying to coordinate your own way of being in a harmonious way with the others. Mm. Wonderful. And then that, one more uh, characteristic yes. is that it's creativity that is a primary responsibility. Hmm. So we see that the human roles are creative and the indigenous mind is integrating art, perception, causality, explanation, and being kind of all at the same time. That's right. And so you use uh, your stories to instruct one another, to guide your own mindset, to um, remember to honor the elders, the ancestors, the plants or animals you're with. Mm-hmm. Yes. And let me just point out a couple other things that are distinctive between the traditional wisdom of the Western world and this primal or Aboriginal wisdom. The target of your compassion in traditional wisdom is other people. It's very anthropocentric, centered on human beings. Whereas in the primal wisdom tradition, you are compassionate towards all. Hmm. So you uh, take the perspective of the animals around you, the plants and trees and rivers, and try to keep them in mind when you make your decisions. Hmm. So it's much wider than not just thinking about um, even myself or my family or my community, but it's even magnified to include the whole ecosystem in which you're living and operating, and maybe even larger than that, too, yes. right? Even what is beyond you, you're taking that in, into consideration. That's right. And you, when you give gifts, which you do routinely, you do it to all things and all uh, around you. You honor the relationships you have with everything around you, mm-hmm. not just with people. And then the one other piece that's different is quite interesting. In the traditional wisdom uh, of the West, 
your fear, you, your greatest fear is your animal nature. You're afraid of that, of uh, that deeper part of you. Um, whereas in the Aboriginal or Primal Wisdom view, your worry is to be alienated from your animal nature. <laughs> now, this is very strikingly different, isn't it? So what's going on? Well, my theory is that in the West, we have mistreated babies and young children so much that they get very dysregulated and cry and scream and all, and people think that's your animal nature. Mm. That's not typical for babies in our primal settings, in our ancestral settings. They're not uh, worrisome and cranky and annoying. They're very calm and, and loving and caring and uh, centered. Uh, so I think that's what's happened is in the West, they've forgotten how to raise babies. And so then you end up with these dysregulated people. And then they worry that, oh, no, we're going to all turn into animals, selfish, mm. aggressive little creatures like our babies. And that's what you fear most. Whereas in the primal wisdom tradition, being alienated from your animal nature means you're missing part of yourself because that animal nature is the part of you that connects to everything else. It's part of your heart. It's part of your perceptual system of feeling like you are part of the earth. So it's really part of your identity. They see that as very much human. Their animal nature is part of their humanity, of their identity, and as this great asset that they have. That's right. <laughs> and then you have in Native American communities particular animals that are your totems or your guides or your uh, spirit guides. And so they very much uh, integrate that into their everyday spirituality. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But then the question is, then how do we raise children towards wisdom, right? Um, right. How do we help grow children towards wisdom? Well, part of what we talk about throughout our series here is the Evolve Nest. The Evolve Nest uh, helps us help children reach their full potential, and that means honoring their uniqueness, their needs as they develop them, and to honor them as um, agents of their own. Uh, they have an inner compass, and we want to keep that clear, you know, that guide that's inside of them is the mystery of the life force <laughs> of, uh, I mean, there's ma many ways to talk about it and scientists tend to not talk about it, but in the, uh, in the humanities, it's, you know, the spiritual aspect of yourself, that, that deeper self that will guide you. And we have to honor then children's deeper self. And the way you do that initially is with this evolved nest, you're responsive to the baby, you don't distress them. And then let them have more and more autonomy as they are eager for it and uh, always there with a pro-social interpretation of what they're trying to do when they're two and they have this surge of autonomy, you know, to help them get through that period as they're figuring out what they can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my question. As you're talking, immediately as you're talking, I'm thinking, what are parents going to say with that two, three-year-old, right, who is in the the place where they're developing autonomy and testing those boundaries and those limits? So, how do you foster wisdom and that experience uh, at the same time, continuing to respect respect them? Yeah. So what happens in the small man hunter-gatherer communities, according to the observers, is that when a child of t age two or so takes a stick and starts running at somebody with it, that person, no matter what age they are, will just make a game out of it and, miss and redirect the child, you know, and not shame them or anything because you don't want to damage their confidence at that age. Mm -hmm. If you punish them and they don't punish at all, 
Uh, if you punish them, though, you are going to then focus their energy on trying to figure out what you want instead of following their inner compass. Mm. So it's very, um, very dangerous, actually, to punish children because you misdirect their mm. Their development. It is interesting too when you read those ethnographic studies of the small band hunter gatherers, and when something like that happens, I'm always so surprised at how how calmly the parents react to it. Right, that there's not this big surprise that their child is uh, maybe doing something that uh, might hurt somebody else. They just redirect or they separate. If two children, you know, start fighting, they just kind of separate very very gently and and go along. And so I think that not shaming them comes with not having a big emotional reaction. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> and it's also not assuming that you're controlling that child's life, which is what's happened now in our civilized nations is parents think they have to direct the child's development and that's really not true. There was a National Public Radio had has had a series on how to raise a human and uh, one of the journalists went was in Mexico with an indigenous family there, a settled family, and asked the mother if she was stressed being a mother. And the mother was like taken aback. Why would I be stressed being a mother? And in that household and everywhere uh, in traditional societies, children were just helping with everything, Mm. right? And so they were pointing out in this particular story, I think, that you have to let the young one-year-old help because they're ready to learn those schemas of helping, those ways of helping between one and three, four. If you prevent them from helping or, you know, not encourage them that time, they may miss the, the opportunity to build those schemas of helping. And so then when they're teens, you know, they don't want to help at all because they never developed them at the right moment. At least mm. that's how I'm interpreting it. Mm-hmm. So for most families in traditional societies, raising children wasn't a pain in the neck like it is for us in the States now because parents expect to have to control their kids most of the time and they don't have the support that we had in our traditional societies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much more support, right, within the larger context too, yes. And so let's just end with this, um, the notions of the honorable harvest. What kind of practices are part of this primal wisdom that actually help foster it, that we can uh, help children learn through uh, habitual, ritual kind of ways of uh, existing? And here are a few of them. These are from Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, a botanist PhD, who's a Native American, and she her book is Braiding Sweetgrass. And she wrote these down. These are actually principles that are all over the world in the indigenous societies, but nobody ever really wrote them down, so she tried to write some of them down. So you want to know the ways of the ones who take care of you. Who are those people? That means the animals and the plants that feed your community, you and your community. You want to know their ways so you can take care of them. When you meet a plant, a tree, an animal, you want to introduce yourself. And you want to be accountable then. If you're asking for life, you want to be respectful towards whatever that creature or living thing is. You want to ask permission. And if the the answer is no, which is an intuitive she talks about uh, sweetgrass plants and <clears throat> how the way to get a no, you pull a little bit at the plant. If the plant resists, you ask first for permission, may I take you? And if the plant resists, that's a no. If the plant re- yields, that's a yes. So it's building those intuitive ways of interacting with other than humans 
which is something we kind of think is kind of nuts in the West, I think, but this is part and parcel of how we used to live in sustainable ways around the world. You don't take the first or last of anything, take only what you need, so whatever you're harvesting, take only which is that, that which is given, so don't grab for without permission. Uh, don't take more than half, minimize harm, use it respectfully, don't waste it, share with others, give thanks, give a gift in react, uh, response to the gift that you are given, uh, and sustain those people and those animals and those plants. Mm. Yeah, some really um, important, uh, I would say, pieces of wisdom, but they all lead to wisdom, <laughs> uh, things to live by. So thank you so much, Dr. Narvaez. We'll see you next time.